What else is on your mind? I'm curious to circle back to yesterday. I would love, uh, I'm trying to get a sense of it, but more clarification on that linking of signifiers and both how and to what degree they map onto sort of biological body. Uh, you know what, I, you asked that a version of that question yesterday and we just did not get around to answering it. This is, really, this is really it. I mean, this is a great question, Chandler's. I, I still think this is a profound area for work. I think the primary object of this should be um, uh, the tattoo. How is it that the signifier gets inscribed in the body? And there are certain things that we can talk about, for instance. We can talk about, for instance, if you study um, like the, the mechanics of public speaking and you start talking with people. I mean, usually it's like it's first year freshmen in college who have to take this class called public speaking. And you know the temperature in the room hasn't changed between the time class started and the time this student has to give their speech. But it's something about approaching the front of the room causes them to sweat. And they'll say things like, can we open a window before I get started? It's really hot in here. And I've got a thermometer. I'm like, yo, this is not, the temperature has not changed in this room. There's something about the social space that has caused a physiological reaction. That might be one of the ways that you can see this happening. There can also be times when, for instance, you might have a horrible ex, somebody who really messed with you and you really messed with them. And then you meet somebody who has the same name as them and you have an immediate aversion to that person, or worse still, a kind of attraction to them. That is occurring at the level of the signifier. You know, one that happens to me sometimes, I don't know a lot of people named Sam, but when I meet somebody named Sam, my first initial reaction, like right out of the gates is like, nah, your name's not Sam. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think so, man. Nah, what's your real name? No, for real, for real, for real, what's your name? There can only be one. That's kind of how the master signifier works. But that, in, that knee jerk impulsive response has to say like, come on, Akasa, how many Akasas have you ever met? I, I met Akasha. <laughs> ah, so close, close, but no cigar. This is a really important thing that one of the first and foremost signifiers that we embody, that we feel is ours, that points to us, that is ours, that we are it, is that first name. That first name, Chandler, is one of the signifiers that it's almost like you feel is you. It's not an abstract signifier that can be put into anybody's sentence, like the vertical pronoun I. It's the opposite of a shifter. It's the furthest thing from a shifter. Chandler is a proper name that can only be felt by you. It equals you. Nobody else could possibly be a Chandler. I suspect that if you were to put this question to Lacan, this is one of the primary directions he would go. He would say, let's take a look at proper names. Let's take a look at your first name because your last name is almost always gonna be one that is shared by others like you, typically in your family. But that first name 
unless you're Sicilian or something like this, where your name, like everybody on my mother's side of the family, the Michelle's, all these people, all these people have the name, they're either named Frank or Philip or some Frank Philip or Philip Frank. There's like an occasional Joe in there, but they all have the exact same first name. Then there's like Frank Philip II. Then there's Frank Philip III, Philip Frank I. And it just, they have like three names, man. So even that first name gets socialized. But in the American tradition, in the Western tradition, typically, we have that first proper name as being a special one. Your parents, your primary caregiver may have decided to even take your name, which is pretty regular, and spell it a little differently to further make it special just for you. So I would think that the first place to start looking for the signifier's relationship to the body at the level of inscription, the way that it is written into your body would be at the level of the proper name. And then take it to the next level and think about the proper name as the tattooed word. It's not just anything that you get tattooed on your arm, it's her name. And then of course, don't forget about the stereotypical tattoo from Popeye and stuff forward to remind you whose name it usually is. Isn't it interesting? I don't know anybody who has their own name tattooed on their body. It's somebody else's name. It's the proper name of another and not just any other in the stereotype to the extent that it holds. What's tattooed on the body is the mother's tongue. And that would be Lacan's point. Even if you were to tattoo your own name onto your body, the letters of which your name is comprised are not yours. They belong to the symbolic. They belong to the big other. So here's another way to think about the proper name. It may feel as though it deeply cuts into you. It is a part of your living organism to the extent that like me, you see somebody else with your first name and you're like, nah, there can only be one. Just as you know, you can only be in one place physically at a time. You might think that there can only be one of you with that name in physical space at a time. You can't sit in two chairs at once and there can't be two Chandlers at once. But Lacan would also invite you to remember that the signifiers that make up C-H-A-N-D-L-E-R are not of your making, they belong to the big other. So it would be no coincidence that when the human subject literally tries to inscribe themselves with signifiers at the level of the tattoo, of course they're not going to put their own name on it because there's a fundamental tension between the identification of your name as your own and the lied fact that it's comprised of letters not of your own making and then the appropriation of some other name and its inscription onto your body and again i just want to emphasize stereotypes matter not because they're correct but because they have a life of their own and here's one of them 
it wouldn't just be any other that gets tattooed on your body. It's an intimate other. The person from whom you received care. What's tattooed on your body is care from another. Care from mother. Care from other. Lacan is always playing with that. The from other and the from mother. Doesn't mean you gotta be a mommy to be a mommy. I'm a mommy to my kid. I think it's a great question. And I know why you're asking it Chandler given your practice and the kind of work that you do. I can't say that I've read anything in the Lacanian literature that really speaks to that. But I do know that he is of the opinion that signifiers usually get inside us and they become us. And in fact, he thinks that the, the enunciating subject as an embodied, erased, zeroed out in the language world, part of us, he says that is the work of the signifier. The signifier is what I like the expression places under erasure. You heard me refer to that. The reason why I like places under erasure is because the eraser is usually attached to the very thing that produces the inscription. It's the opposite end. Now this is a pen, but it's the opposite end of the pencil. The pencil that writes is also the one that can simultaneously, not usually, but if you work it right, erase. And that's worth noting here. When the grammatical subject emerges, the end of the pencil that writes it into existence is moving just as much as the end of the pencil that places another part of you under erasure. That's what Lacan means when he flits around with the idea of, in order for one thing to exist, the other thing has to die. Because the mechanism for its existence what brings it into existence is the very same device that rubs something else out. And once you start thinking like this, you can get into deconstruction and Derridian work, important stuff for thought, especially if you wanna become one of these high-end, sophisticated, black, Gucci-clad, $500 an hour, only in New York or San Francisco psychoanalysts. I have a question since you're talking about the big other. Um, can you just review the concept with the small other as well? I just feel like I'm yep. the unknown still. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Amy, because that, that's a really tricky one. And it's one that oftentimes is a great source of confusion. So Lacan will oftentimes say things like the big other doesn't exist. What he means by that is that the big other is law with a capital L, society with a capital S. The big other is normativity. The big other is like the collection or the big ism that describes an entire body of embodied actions, but it's the category. The big other the symb as symbolic is the thing that contains all the words. The little other in this case would be one particular word. 
So take a good example of this, the law. Yes, it's written down in books, but think about the relationship between the law and the cop. The police officer is a little o other who derives his or her authority from a monopolization, not just on violence, but a monopolization of access to the law. And cops use this all the time. They pull you over and they purport to know something about the law that you don't, usually around issues of probable cause and suspicion and stuff like that. And they'll say things that are tricky, like, can I look in the trunk of your car? And you're like, fuck, what if I say no? If I say no, does that give them probable cause because they think I'm hiding something? I'm not hiding anything, but I really am late for an appointment. And I don't think he has any right to look in my trunk. Can I just say no and move on? Or can I, do I need to say yes in order to move on faster? What do I do? This tension, this ambiguity, the anxiety that the cop provokes by asking, can I search your car? Is sadistic. And the reason why it's sadistic is because it shows you having an anxious response to the law. And if the cop is a sadist, that's what they get off on. They don't actually even want to search your trunk. They want to see you squirm. And they want to see you squirm because you are uncertain of the law. And the authority of the cop comes from their ability to say, I am not uncertain about the law. I have a very clear understanding of how the law works. I have privileged access to it. If you don't like this ticket, I'll see you in court. And guess what? I'm a cop. Judges love me. You're never gonna win against me. So you have these, these power plays that the little O other makes by claiming to be an instantiation, or the privileged representative of the big O other as law. So think of it as big O other as the dictionary and little O other as a specific word. And it might even be the word dictionary. Then you could have big O other as law, not any particular law, but as kind of like law and order. Dun, dun, kind of shit. And then you've got the individual instantiation, the little o other of the law. That's a good, clean way to distinguish them. I would like to add one more complexity to this, though. You've heard me describe the big o other as the symbolic language, society, normativity. But the symbolic, all of this is captured for Lacan with this category, this register known as the symbolic. I'd like to suggest that most little o others have less to do with the symbolic than they do with the imaginary. Most little o others are playing out little o other fantasies. And most of our relationship to little o others are imaginary relationships. The primary little o other that we interact with is the entity 
just above the split subject in the lower right-hand side of the graph of desire. This figure up here is called your ideal ego. And it is as it sounds. This is the celebrity that somebody once said you remind them of. This is the poster of that celebrity hanging above your bed to stick with some of these examples. This is the vision of you provided by your selfie. The selfie that exhibits you extremely well as you can still see as you flip through these screens with people who have their cameras turned off. I've noticed though today as well that many people have removed their images and now what we see is just their name, which is great. Except for Mimi, who's awesome. Her dog is still here. Kick ass Mimi, thank you. So appreciate that. <laughs> but the idea here is that Mimi's dog, this black dog down here, what kind of dog is that, Mimi? He's a late uh, Black Russian Terrier. Passed away in March. That Black Russian Terrier is your ideal ego, or one of them. It's yes, one of them. Perfect. It's one of them. Yeah, that's right. You can have lots of them. But the idea here is that the ideal ego is a little O other that you imagine to be the best version of you. So I want to emphasize here that little O others tend to be imaginary. And you can see this sometimes when you hear people talking about, you ever see somebody walk by and you're like, damn, that dude looks just like his dog. How is that even possible? How is that a thing? Like I've never, as Mimi, as Mimi fluffs her hair. Brilliant, I love it. I mean, so you, you have these weird ways that people tend to surround themselves with things that they think are their best side. You ever have somebody who, um, who gets a new phone and with the new phone, a new opportunity to get a new case and then they get the new case and you're like, oh, that is so you. That is so you, of course you would get a case that has cats on it. Oh, I can't even believe this. Someone gets a car and it's not just any old car. It's a Honda Civic. They want to trick it out. They're going to bow the legs on the thing. They're going to put an aftermarket exhaust, a totally unnecessary spoiler, a cam on the front. This thing is tricked. They got a sound system. All the windows are tinted. It's got a custom paint job. And you look at that and you're like, damn, what an identity, what an identity you have. Look at you. Look at you. And they're like, no, don't look at me. Look at my car. I am my car. Somebody who's out there wiping it down with a baby diaper, unused, of course. But somebody who so identifies with some object in their life. Whatever it is, that object is their ideal ego or one of them. You may not care about cars. You may only care about living spaces. And your office has to be impeccable. You want everything to be in its place before you leave home or leave work. You want everything to be perfectly ordered and ready for the next day. You might even be obsessive about the arrangement of your office. That could be your ideal ego. You may be obsessed with your own makeup, your own hair, your own wardrobe. Your closet might need to be organized in certain ways. That closet the closet with the doors that you took off because your closet is so well arranged that you think it's a part of an art show that you're exhibiting in your room. You're like, I just don't even need closet doors because this shit is a work of art, baby. That kind of stuff, 
Those are also ideal egos. If you can recall that now classic film, Spring Breakers, look at all my shit. That's your little O other. Little O others tend to be all your shit. It can be also your children. If you ever see a kid who's definitely overdressed for an occasion, not comfortable, and you always are like, yeah, okay, your parents want to dress you up, got it. And then you have adults who have horror stories about having to get dressed up for shit that they always hated. They always hated wearing this stuff. Why they make me wear this? It's not about the kid. In this case, it's about the adult. And the child, the little other, literally being a little other, working out something that the parent themselves longs for. You ever see the aging parent who's wearing trendier clothes than the youthful, attractive child? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Start working that through. Think about the ways that parents often try and live vicariously through their children. Your child can be a little of other. <laughs> Your comments here are great, I love it. But the idea is that, is that these are imaginary. We could even say imaginations of other things, other people, and the like. So the big O other puts us in the field of language, abstraction, law and order, normativity. The big O other points to not the ideal ego, but the ego ideal. The ego ideal is at the other end of the arrow I just drew for you. It's this, it's this IA. In Lacanian algebra, what you will oftentimes, in fact, almost always find, are things that are written in capital letters and non-italicized are things that belong in the symbolic. Things that are italicized and written in lowercase are shorthand for things that belong primarily in the imaginary, which is why you can see here that specular image or ego or ideal ego is written in lowercase, but ego ideal is here written in uppercase. This is from the symbolic. This is all the norms and expectations about what it means to be a man or a woman or a psychologist or a therapist, all of those social standards that you internalize and try and ultimately fail to live up to, which may be the truth behind your pursuit of a PhD or a, what are you getting? You're getting a, you're getting a society, I think at this point, right? PhD. Those are all right here. Thank you for clarifying. Those are all right here. Internalizations from the symbolic ideals that you hold or standards that you hold your ego to and then fail to live up to in order to then enter the superego, allow the censor to come and punish. The superego in Lacanian terms is a punitive ego. It's the part of you that kicks your own ass. It's the censor. It's the disapproving part of you. Your ego ideal are all of the standards that you fail to live up to as an individual ego. And I'll add it here as the little M. So here's how that circuit would work. If you actually wanna play it out, 
you internalize all the expectations of society. They constantly make you feel inadequate, hence split subjectivity. You're incomplete, you're fragmented, you can't live up to them. So you then look to the exterior world for some little o other to prop you up. This is, I'm gonna get a new car. That'll make me feel less old. I'm gonna get a new wife. That'll make me feel, you know what I'm saying? That, so you start working through the list of objects that you can latch onto to kind of prop up your otherwise feeling of being split and inadequate. That propping up where you combine feeling like a weak, old shit brain with all the stuff that you surround yourself with to make you feel otherwise, the new house, the fancy car, the blah, 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 the new phone, all that stuff. When you combine these two, you get an ego. That's what the ego is made of. The ego is a composite, I told you yesterday. It's a composite figure that is made of your feelings of inadequacy because you know you're a split subject combined with all of these imaginary others that you use as crutches and that then congeals <clears throat> almost like a Frankensteinian congealment, like all the parts are brought together to form an ego. Your ego is like Frankenstein. All these different parts and objects and splinterings are brought together, stitched together into this hideous beast that you try to teach to play the violin something along those lines. And you want everybody to tell you how beautiful it is. And they're like, yo, bro, this thing looks like Frankenstein. And you're like, yes, but isn't it handsome? Tell me it's handsome, tell me you love it. Don't you want it with you right now? You want it, don't you? And you start going through these things. And what you're really doing is asking somebody to love the creature. But let's be clear, creation is the building of something from nothing. Your Frankenstein is not a creature because it's built from things. And those things are little others, imaginary others, oftentimes ideal egos. And then the circuit continues. And you go back down and you fish into these ego ideals, which in turn make you feel more and more inadequate. The superego is usually here and here, operating in between, and usually punishing the ego for not living up to the standards of the ego ideal, which in turn causes more reliance and more impulse towards imaginary others. So I told you yesterday that Lacan really breaks down this ego stuff more than anybody, I think, at least, I mean, your reading is more vast than mine on this, but my understanding is that his work with the ego is pretty damn complex. So you have these figures, you have ideal egos. These are your specular images, your little others. You have ego ideals, which are all the laws and expectations that society has imposed upon you. Then you have super egos, the superego is the censor, is the punisher, 
is the one that comes in and punishes you. The superego is the sadist inside you. We are all somewhat sadistic insofar as we have superegos, according to Lacan. And their job is always the same, censorship, punishment, and the like. And then you have the ego itself, which is, is usually a component of all these things. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, is a superego, like those voices delivered by the ego ideal? That's a great question. I don't know. I don't know if that, if that would be fair to say. It kind of makes sense. You'd kind of think that it would be. But I don't think that the, the ego ideal has a punitive part in it. The superego as its own entity is what looks at the ego ideal and all of the different standards that you've internalized. And then it takes a look at your ego, this Frankenstein fuck up creature that you've made, not out of nothing, but out of other things. And it says, whoa, ego's way down here looking like shit. So ego ideal is way up here. You're nowhere close to that. And then this, the super ego runs in between, reminding you of the great discrepancy and punishing you for your inability to live up. But I don't know if it receives its voice from, which is really interesting because if I take your point here, which is a very profound one, is that the superego has a voice and it does, doesn't it? You can't hear it, but it has a voice. Well, and I was kind of formulating off of like, if you go up that cell a little bit above the specular image and you run into the big A, and then it loops back around through signification of this unbarred other and then comes back down to this eventually the ego ideal. Uh, brilliant. I like it because it also gives us an opportunity to speak about voice, which you can see in the finished graph. So we are on page 692 in the French, page 817. <clears throat> and you can see that above the ideal ego, little IA, you have voice out there. It's a very interesting read on this. And that if Nick's working this, it would be from split subject to ideal ego, to the voice of the big other, back around on the retroactive arrow to meaning according to the big other, and then back down into the ego and then back into the ego ideal. That is absolutely one way to do this. And you'll note that it's one of a couple of ways. So from split subject, you can turn left at the ideal ego. And that short circuit is the one that I've been showing for you the past few minutes. That is a representation of what Lacan develops in the mirror stage that everybody so loves to talk about that little first short circuit. It is also what he develops in another schema that you can look up called schema L. L as in lovely. Schema L is him working out these four elements at the bottom. What Nick is offering is for us to, instead of making that left turn, take the second left turn from big A to meaning according to the big A. 
and see if that gives us access to something more akin to the superego. The reason why I like it and why I think it would make sense is because that first horizontal line that goes from signifier all the way to voice, that's like the threshold of language. It's what I was drawing for you yesterday as the child's expression of need is converted by the adult's interpretation into demand. They're occurring at different, on different sides of that very same arrow. So if we were to draw it, it would look something like this. The bottom part of that graph shows need down here, the cry comes up, meets all the possible responses, big A, that the adult could do, circles back around, the adult picks one of those possible responses, remember me bringing a blanket or a food to my kid, and that transforms the need into a demand. Well, the threshold between need and demand, need being bio-animalistic, and demand being socio-linguistic, the horizontal arrow here is that of language. So you would have beneath this arrow, bio-animalistic, above this arrow, socio-linguistic. And that's the very same arrow that we see here running from signifier to voice. And so part of what I like about what Nick's doing here is suggesting that because the superego does seem to have a voice, does seem to have language, perhaps it is formed by taking the second left turn in the graph of desire. And to take that a little bit further or differently, I feel like the superego by nature of using language is not only perhaps criticizing or berating self for not being the idealized ego, but also other because they are not the idealized ego. Yeah. Isn't that always the case? I yeah. think you're right, Paloma. There would always be the superego is, 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 is basically saying, why aren't you them? Why aren't you them again and again and again? You're still not them. You're still not them. That's why you're always in a trap, Lacan says, in another very famous essay, this one from the 1950s, The Function in the Field of Speech and Language and Psychoanalysis. If you want some stone cold Lacan, this piece is the manifesto. This is him saying, if you wanna know what Lacan does, this is what I do the function in the field of speech and language and psychoanalysis. The only reason why I didn't assign it to you for this is that it's about 70 pages long. I thought we better start with something, a little denser 30 pager instead. But that would be the next place for you to turn if you really wanted to see how this stuff works clinically. The function in the field of speech and language in psychoanalysis or something along these lines. It's a great essay. It's in the same book that we're reading right now. It's a long one, but part of the work he does in there is exactly along these lines. And he says, if somebody shows up and asks you a simple question like, um, 
do you think I look like Emma Stone? People have told me that I look like Emma Stone. What do you think? Lacan is like, you're fucked no matter how you respond to that question. If you say no, obviously you're gonna hurt that person's feelings. But notice what happens, and this is where Lacan focuses his attention. What if you say yes? If you say yes, I think you do look like Emma Stone. You would think this would be a flattering comment to the person, but to Palomi's point, it is not. It is deep down a shattering because it says to them effectively, you are not yourself. The part of you that everyone else finds appealing is the part of you that is not you. It's the Emma Stone part of you. And all that does when you answer in the affirmative is it reminds that person that they are only worthwhile to themselves insofar as their ego is comprised of a little O other, in this case, Emma Stone, an ideal ego that is better than them, prettier than them. Because no, no one ever shows up and is like, people say that I'm prettier than Emma Stone. It's very rare to hear that. You can't hear people be like, people say I look like Emma Stone. And then the best response you think is, no, you look much prettier than her. You're more attractive than Emma Stone. And they're like, what? You know what I'm saying? People freak the fuck out. And you can do the, run it the opposite way in the hetero circuit. But the same thing happens. It doesn't even have to be a hetero circuit. It's just anytime somebody shows up and asks for you to give them a stamp of approval on some ideal ego that they have glommed onto. You see, that's the other indication here. If they truly felt united with Emma Stone, they would not need to ask you to validate the union. They wouldn't need your approval. Lacan's point, this is a demonstration of how desire works. It is first and foremost a desire for recognition. When someone says, do you think I look like Emma Stone? What they're asking you to do is to validate a fantasy that they have, a validation that they require for the very same reason that they required the fantasy in the first place. Namely, because they feel inadequate to themselves, incomplete. The same reason they glommed onto Emma Stone or some other little O other some other ideal ego is the same reason they've come to you and asked you to validate the union. This is the reason, which is why in the complete graph of desire, this is where it all begins. Everything flows from this split subject, which is why we spent so much time yesterday working on the grammatical and enunciating subjects because that is the starting place and the foundation for all the other moves that happen. And why I also told you yesterday that the type of self and other compassion that psychoanalysis for Lacan culminates in is a kind of acceptance and identification with the part of you that is split. In fact, even a love of the part of you that's split. With regards to others, you might look at someone's face whom you just met and you can see the wrinkle in the corner of their mouths, the furrows deeply cut into their brows. And you might look at them and say, look at this old motherfucker. 
You might look at them with disgust. You might look at them as hideous beings. But to love that person the way that their partner of 45 years has loved them is from a different perspective. It's to look at the creases in the corners of their mouth and see 45 years of laughter. It's to look at the furrows in their brow and see 45 years of that look of curiosity and determination as they approach the canvas. It's to actually love the parts of them that from the other's point of view seem to be the most hideous. That's what Lacan is getting at here. When I say love means giving what you don't have and what you don't have you lack. And to share lack with another is to allow them to be split just like you. There's a reason why both of the examples are cracks in the human face, the crease in the skin, the furrow in the brow. These are all illustrations, embodied illustrations of the bar, the split that makes the split subject. This is where you love. You don't love at the enunciating subject. You don't love at the grammatical subject. You love at the crack. And that is precisely also analytically where the Lacanian analyst aims their discourse. You aim it at the crack. So all of these things start to work together to the point that I would just like to suggest that Lacanian psychoanalysis is not simply a clinical technique. When you really start getting into this, this is a way of being in the world with others, but particularly with yourself, because that's where this starts. It's about first learning to hear what comes from your own crack, your own split, your own bar, which is exactly what the ego does not have ears to hear. So that's why sometimes you need the help of this expert hearer, listener, known as the analyst. Their job is to help you hear what your ego is deaf to. And the reason why your ego is deaf, it's not, it's not because it's bad. It's just because it's listening to all of these other players. It's so jammed up. Its frequency is so jammed and its radio waves are so full of all of these other impulses. And then according to Nick, now you also have the super ego yammering on in the background about how much you suck. It's just a lot, it's a lot of voices in a single head. How on earth are you are going to hear the meager, quiet, little peep that comes from the crack? It's a lot to ask an ego to do when they're mired in so many other voices. And sometimes you need a little help. That's what you are here to do. Not me, you. So I was trying to, and this is like clumsy, uh, but trying to think through this, like, is there a way to link this with the ineffable, which Lacan hates, right? And like Jungian, whatever. So I'm thinking like, is the big other from perhaps a voice from the collective unconscious, but the more, as we talk through this, it feels like it, it's more like, like the plastic thrown in the ocean from the collective consciousness. Right. So like, is the big other 
always a social construct, I guess is where it, what it makes me wonder. The big other is the construct known as the social. So it's when Lacan says it doesn't exist, he means something like this. Equality is never gonna walk up your driveway and knock on the door. Freedom doesn't exist. It doesn't mean that you can't approximate it more or less. It just means that freedom itself is not something that is out in the world that you can just run up and shake its hand. The big other is the same way. It is the container for everything that goes on between humans. But it itself is not something that is contained in that container. And that is the dilemma of the symbolic. The dilemma of the symbolic and the missing signifier, the reason why the symbolic is always incomplete is because it does not contain itself. It is the container, but it is never the thing contained. You see what I'm saying? It just doesn't work that way logically. It's the container of all the rules and expectations about being a man, about being a woman, about being an American, all this shit. It's the container for all of that. Lacan's question is, is there a container for this container? And the answer, as you pointed out yesterday in that passage, no. There is no big other for the big other. There's no other container to contain that one. So what then is the status of the container itself? What is it? I can tell you that in seminar 23, Lacan has a brilliant answer, simple answer. He says, it's a plastic bag. It is a fundamentally vascular entity. And I would just like to suggest that the human form, the human body is also a bag which is the fantasy and connection to the uteromorphic. Yeah, yeah. that is a transmutation of the basic bag-like structure of the human form into some magical life-giving bag, as though we are hats from which rabbits can be pulled. The truth though, is that, and this is what Deleuze and Guattari realize about skin, is that skin is this bag and you can have a body without organs. A body without organs is a bag with no contents. You see, that's the body without organs. <clears throat> it's also a body that has not been organized. What it means to suffer through the Oedipal phase and to be properly genitalized is to have a body that has been organized to have your body broken up into all these little organs, erogenous and otherwise, is to suffer the symbolic. That's what the symbolic does, is it compartmentalizes the world. It breaks shit down. Deleuze and Guattari. <coughs> One of the best books on this, and I know you're gonna laugh, but don't laugh too hard because I delivered a series of amazing lectures on this topic. It's a book just called Bubbles. And it's about intimacy. And the argument that this guy makes about bubbles is that the basic structure of human intimacy is always vascular. It's always bubbly. The idea, and it's all about 
uteromorphic stuff, but also about whatever it is we mean by intimacy, it usually has the structure of a bubble. And his point is also the one I'm making here that Lacan also makes, is that the human form is a vascular form. It's a form that contains things, the way skin can contain organs. But also, I just want to emphasize this. Everybody take a deep breath. There's your empty bag. We are inspirational beings because the spirare, the air, is always being blown into us. And if you go back and dig into some of the basic creation myths that shore up a lot of archetypal thinking in and beyond psychology, you can see images of the gods breathing into these clay-like organisms in order to open them up, in order to transform them into containers. It is no coincidence that the basic structure of human togetherness that we have invented, known as society or the symbolic, has a vascular plastic bag container-like structure, just like us. But here's the thing. Just as the symbolic does not contain itself, you do not contain your skin. Our basic bag-like structure is not among the things that are contained within it. This is why set theory, the mathematical tradition after Cantor called set theory is so important to understanding what's happening here. Because it's the only way that we have that I know of for us to really think about what it means to be a container distinct from a thing contained. And Lacan's question when you get to the top of the graph of desire is simple. How do you talk about, how do you find a signifier for the fact that the symbolic cannot contain itself because it is in fact the container? How do you work with this? The signifier of the lack in the other is any signifier that shows you that the symbolic's count of everything is incomplete. Why is it incomplete? Because it doesn't contain itself as a counting machine. It does not account for itself. Who does the accountant's taxes? This is the thing about the symbolic. This is why it's a big other. It's big because it contains everything. But it's totalizing account of everything has to be incomplete. Now, the logic that I showed you yesterday around this went as follows. Honey, I'm so excited to be going camping with you this weekend. Me too. Thank you so much for packing the car. Well, it was a little bit of work, but everything's in here. Okay, great. Did you bring this? Yes. Did you bring that? Yes. How about X? Yes. Why? Honey, honey, honey. I packed everything. You packed everything? Yes. Everything is packed. So you're telling me you've left nothing behind. Yes, everything is packed. Nothing has been left out. Nothing has been left behind. Nothing has been excluded from my totalizing list of all the camping gear that we have. Honey, stop the car, turn around, 
you left nothing behind. Let's go get it. The logic here, the point behind this little anecdote is that there's always something excluded from any claim to account for everything. The question Lacan wants to ask is, what is this something that is nothing? This something that is nothing, and how does it play out in clinical experience, in analytic work? Again, you are now at the hot molten core of Lacanian psychoanalysis. I don't know anybody else other than Bruce Fink that carries students to this level. At this core, things become clearer, not more fuzzy. And I wanna be as loyal to this as possible. The nothing that is left behind, the nothing that is excluded from the symbolic, is a no thing. The easiest, crispest way to understand what's happening here is that it is the function of prohibition itself. It is that primitive no that the human subject primarily represses and excludes from their waking being. The very no that brought the child into language. No, you can't cry anymore and get what you want. You have to use our words. No, we don't go potty in the houseplant. We use the toilet. That no as a function, a thinging of that no, that prohibition is what the symbolic kicks out. And I wanna be really clear about this again as well. The primary thing, the primary human experience that society prohibits is enjoyment. In our terms, jouissance. Which is why if you look at the finished graph of desire, you can see out here, the signifier of the lack and the other occurs on the side of jouissance, because that is fundamentally what society bars. And according to Lacan, everybody who has walked through his door in search of his services, he says what these people fundamentally have needed time and time again is a non-maladaptive way to access enjoyment. They are coming to me because they are not enjoying their lives. They have pleasures, they have comforts, all of their needs are met, but they're walking through my door because they're still fucking miserable and they don't understand why. And his answer is time and again, when I encounter these patients, his responses, and Bruce Fink is exactly the same way. The lineage here from Lacan to Miller to Fink is direct. And Fink says the same thing. He says what these folks need time and time again is a way of accessing jouissance that is not maladaptive. You see, 
enjoying the symptoms of your horrible relationship. Like you don't like fighting with your partner, but isn't the sex great afterwards? There's a way that people fight in order to fuck, which is why I wanted to emphasize the origin of the word fuck is to strike. There's a close connection between human sexuality and the kind of like hyper aggressive, agonistic, antagonistic experiences that couples go through. I'm not saying that the sex isn't great after the fight. I'm just saying that there's an easier way to have great sex. That would be Lacan's point here. That a codependent, really unproductive couple where their rough edges are hitting your rough edges and things are super fucked up between you all. Lacan's point is there's an easier way to get off. There's a much easier way to enjoy than at the level of your disordered clinical state. And so that is the trick of analysis according to him, is to help the subject go all the way up the graph of desire and to eventually reach this point where they can start dealing with what society has told them they can't have, jouissance. What's excluded from the big other, what's cut out, barred and prohibited is human enjoyment. Pleasure, you're fine, but let's be clear about the distinction. Pleasure, according to Freud and Lacan as well, is governed by the pleasure principle, which is fundamentally homeostatic. What I mean by that is that you have to recall that when Freud's coming up with this stuff, he's surrounded by a world of steam, steam engines. Steam was a huge part of the first industrial revolution that he's working through. Freud is emerging and coming into his own just about the time when the second industrial revolution starts popping, which is not in a revolution of steam, but a revolution of steel. The steel revolution was what allowed the skyscraper, what allowed urbanity to really take off. Freud grew up in the first, which was defined by steam engines. And he starts thinking that human subjects are effectively little steam mechanisms. Freud's basic understanding of human subjectivity is that we are tea kettles. Fill us with water, turn on the heat, the temperature rises, and we start looking for a way to let that steam out. Catharsis. We start doing this thing, your tea kettle's singing, the steam is coming out. When you turn the heat off, the temperature inside the kettle gradually returns to the temperature of the room. That is a homeostatic process. Tension is built up in the human subject and then it finds a release. And after the release, the human subject returns to a calmer state. You might also say this is precisely what the death drive aims at. The truth of the death drive is that the temperature of your dead form varies by the temperature of the soil in which it is. When it's winter and the soil is frozen, so also is your form. When it's summer and it's hot in the soil, you warm up as well. So the point is that in pleasurable pursuits in life and in facts of death, 
we are still these homeostatic organisms. That is pleasure. The pleasure that comes from coming home and putting on your pajama pants after you've been wearing tight ass clothes all day to impress the world around you, right? That pleasure is comfort. That feels good. That is not enjoyment. That is not jouissance. It's comfort. When you put on the pajama pants and then sit down in your favorite spot on the couch afterwards and you go, ah, and you sit down, the comfort that follows is pleasure. Ease, repose, that is pleasure. That is not jouissance. You know where jouissance is? Jouissance is here. Ah. When you sit down, the groan, that's jouissance. If jouissance is sexual orgasm, pleasure, is that deep coma stupor that follows, sometimes for hours. That's pleasure, it's not jouissance. Society says you can pursue as much pleasure as you want. It's really as much as you can afford, right? Things get hot in California. I've got a friend, she lives out in East Bay. Man, her shit is always hot. I'm like, why don't you turn on the air conditioning? She's like, can't afford it. Can't afford it. Cats are sweating. The whole place is just nasty. I'm like, I'm not coming over. Forget this. This is over. This is done. And it's just because she can't afford that comfort. Society says you can enjoy. Oh, I almost said it, didn't I? Society says you can experience as much comfort as you can afford. <clears throat> but that is not jouissance. Enjoy as little as possible. That is the basic prohibition of society. Which is why, again, jouissance is up there with the signifier of the lack in the other. Because that's what society continually cuts out. So when we get into this container thing, contained stuff with the symbolic, the symbolic is the container that contains all the rules and structures and so forth just as we are these vascular beings that contain our organized and symbolized stuff. I think it's tempting to start thinking that what's missing from the big other is itself. And in terms of set theory, that makes very good sense. But for our purposes, for let me be clear, your purposes as clinicians, Lacan would have you remember that there is a very specific type of human experience that is barred by society, that is prohibited by society, that is well captured in the parental, read paternal, no. The name of the father, the no of the father. What is prohibited is enjoyment. 